All right, welcome to another round of Let's Buy a Business. I'm your host, Ryan Condi. We dive into buying and selling companies on this podcast. You don't have to raise venture money. You don't have to start the next Google or Facebook or whatever, but you can build an awesome life while building an awesome business at the same time. So let's dive in. All right, so welcome to another round of Let's Buy a Business. So we have a really cool guest with us today, David C. Barnett. Um, He has written a bunch of books about buying businesses, selling businesses, and everything in between. He's built his own businesses. He's been a broker. He's done a little bit of everything. And um, there's a link below in the show notes where you can go to his website. It's David C, as in cat, barnett.com. He's got a YouTube channel that with some incredible videos on there. He's got a great podcast that uh, you can check out in small business deal making. And you should check out his books on Amazon. They're, they're really good. And in this conversation, we dive into a lot of different things. Um, and what I find most interesting is his interesting approach to acquiring, building, evaluating businesses. He always comes at it with a unique perspective and he gives some really good examples about not starting a company from scratch, buying a foundational company first, um, how to get a deal done, how the, the, some of the biggest mistakes that are made when you're buying a company. And these are mistakes made by everybody who's done 10, 20 deals. You still make these types of mistakes. So um, anyways, this was a ton of fun. We're going to jump into this conversation. So here we are with David C. Barnett. Awesome, David. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here, Ryan. David, I'm super excited to have you on. You and I hit it off. We started chatting uh, a week ago, and we were supposed to record a podcast, and we just hit it off and never recorded anything. So now is our, our, our round two. So um, you've done a lot of things in this business buying, business selling space. Tell us a little bit about your background before we dive in. Dive in. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm one of those people who, for the longest time, ever since I was a kid, thought I would be involved in business. And started to you know create those childhood businesses that that a lot of us have. Um, I live in Canada, so my first business, of course, was shoveling snow off the neighbor's walkway, and um, you know got into anything I could that would make money. And I I got the idea in my head that uh, going to university and getting a business degree would be a way that I should get into business. And it took me a while to realize that what they were actually turning me into was what I now refer to as a Fortune 500 bureaucrat where you're kind of like this middle manager person in a big company. But I learned a lot there and I valued the education because when I got out of university, uh, one of the first jobs that I had was with the Yellow Pages. And so I was visiting, this was back in the mid nineties. So I was visiting the owners and managers of small and medium sized businesses, trying to understand who they were looking for for clients and trying to understand how they made money, what their business model was. And I was able to kind of like look at what I learned you know, from a more theoretical point of view, studying things like finance and stuff. And, and I was able to learn about business. It was only later when um, I actually had a business fail. It was my debt brokerage business. I was helping people to get loans and leases and commercial mortgages and factoring facilities. I ran into the financial crisis in 2008 and over half of the B grade companies that I was using to access capital for my clients went under in that crisis. And so I needed to make a pivot. And that's when I realized business brokerage was a big opportunity um, because I'd worked with a few people trying to get financing to buy a business. And I'd just seen some absolutely horrendous deals put together by people who didn't really know what they were doing and from many different disciplines. So people from you know the legal community, from the accounting world, but more in particular, uh, real estate agents who thought that selling a business was like selling a house. And so I saw people lose deposits. I saw people get into deals where 
things like operating capital weren't understood correctly and, you know, just devastating situations for people. And, and I thought to myself, you know, who is supposed to be doing these deals? And where I was living, um, there was, you know, basically just a small handful of people that called themselves business brokers. And when I started to look into it, I realized that there were some big franchise names in that space. And there was this organization called the IBBA that had been doing a professional designa designation since the 1970s. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to get into this, but I want to do it right. So I joined up with one of these big franchise names that gave me access to training. And I spent a week in Ottawa, a week in Atlanta, a week down in Orlando over the course of a three-year period while I got into business brokerage. And I became the first person where I lived to ever achieve that designation. And it gave me training and a better understanding and, and to know how to do these deals. Um, so I ran a business brokerage office for almost four years, did 36 deals while I did that. Um, and it's, Ryan, I can tell you, it was a pretty crazy business, a roller coaster cash flow. And um, eventually I ended up leaving um, because I just had a horrendous time creating any kind of family budget that I could depend upon to support my kids. And I went through a divorce and decided I had to get out of it. So I became a banker. And a few years later, just like that Al Pacino character, you know, they kept pulling me in. Um, I, my phone kept ringing and I eventually re-entered the space, but using a consulting model instead of being a broker that earned a commission. And so I've been doing that now for the past five or six years. That's when I got onto YouTube and started writing books on the topic and, and built myself this business that I can support myself with that also allows me the flexibility to be a single dad of two kids. I love the background and uh, appreciate you sharing some of the ups and the downs. I don't think people realize, and maybe they do, but um, with Instagram and Facebook and TikTok, Nobody shares about the tough times. It's all about the, the glamorous, whatever they're doing. And in reality, everybody's stuck in line, you know, buying something out, at, uh, buying groceries at the checkout store. And there's ups and downs that go within this journey. And it does seem like everybody I've ever talked to, they, they started out with A and then they did B and then C and then D and then they went back to C. And that's just the nature of how careers work. Um, and I know you and I talked about how, you know, brokers, you're not, you, you know, you have a fiduciary responsibility to the seller, but you also like the only way a transaction happens is by helping the sell the buyer too. Right. So yep. help them with financing. So doing 36 deals in four years, um, it may not sound like a lot depending upon where listeners are coming from. That's busy. That's a lot of deals. That is a lot of deals. I was, I was a full-time business broker, which meant I did it Monday to Friday from about eight 30 in the morning till five o'clock at night. And most, if you get out into the business brokerage world, you'll find that there's a lot of people who are late stage in life. They've had a career somewhere, maybe someone were drawing a pension. And so they can weather those ups and downs in the cash flow because they have some sort of stability financially under them. I was in my early 30s when I got into it. And, you know, I thought that I had some financial stability. And I also thought that the opportunity, would be greater than it ended up turning out to be as far as the number of transactions and the the timelines. And so I'm in Canada, the, the big chain that I was a part of was based in the States. And in the States, you guys have some different tax features that allow people to, for example, sell an asset, but as long as you take the proceeds and put them into a similar asset within a few months, you can do that rollover and you defer the capital gains. And so there's a lot more transaction activity in the world of business brokerage in the States than there is in Canada. 
And all of the numbers that I was basing my business plan on were on based on numbers that were given to me by these guys in the States. And in Canada, those same tax benefits don't exist. And so nobody ever sells a good business here unless they need to, <laughs> unless they, because why would you let go of a golden goose, right? Yeah. It's, it's good if it's profitable, it's bringing you money all the time. You sell it when you are sick, you need to retire or you know something happens like a divorce or, or some major personal thing. And so, you know, I was talking with colleagues in the States who would have customers coming back, coming back and forth every few years to buy something and sell something. And I would work really hard to get a seller. Sometimes it would take me over a year to convince someone to list their business with me. Then it would take me a year or two to find the right buyer and to help that buyer put the financing and everything in place and then do the deal. And then I would never do business with either of them again. There, there was only one exception or maybe two. There were two people that came back and bought more than one business from me, um, but they were really the rare exception. Most people would come and do business with you once. And so I completely underestimated the customer acquisition problem of being a business broker. And you know, for a lot of brokers, even in the States, if you're selling for someone who is retiring, they're probably not coming back. Yeah, absolutely. And I know. I think every business, maybe there's been two or three businesses I've ever seen in my entire life that didn't have a customer acquisition problem, or they thought it was going to be this and it ended up being this, right? Customer acquisition is just hard and you have to be optimistic as an entrepreneur or else you wouldn't do this. And so you're, you're yeah. always overly optimistic of how fast you can acquire customers in any business because that's just, that's just the nature of it is. It's always going to be harder than you think. Um, you've written a lot of books. You have tons of YouTube videos that are absolutely fantastic. We'll link to a lot of those. Um, before we jumped on our call right now, David, I, re I read your book, uh, smarter than a startup. So yeah. I'm gonna ask you a few questions about this book. Cause I love this book and the concept of it, I'll let you, I'll, actually, I'm not going to, I'll let you jump in. Tell us a little bit about the concept of smarter than a startup and, and what it's about. Yeah, sure. So, so I run into a lot of people who, who will find me on places like YouTube and it's because they eventually come upon this idea of buying a business instead of starting one. And usually when you talk to these people, you find out that their journey began with a dream of an entrepreneurial creation. They, they thought, oh, I'd like to be in business one day. And if most people, when you think about getting into business, you think about starting a business. And we hear a lot in the world about the word startup, right? You know, starting a new business. And it's only when people realize just how risky that is and the, you know, the failure rate for new businesses that they will eventually come over to this idea of, well, maybe I should buy something that already has customers and processes and sales and everything in place. And so I had this one customer who bought a pizzeria and he had a background from the cookie industry. And what he decided to do was he decided to start a cookie business in the pizzeria by using the oven in the kitchen in the mornings before they open for lunch. And it was, you know, I thought I was a pretty smart guy at the time, but it, it, it took a few years before what he had done really gelled into this notion or concept in my head. And then, you know, I only wrote the book, I think it was in 2019, but the whole idea that if you have an idea of what you would like to do, maybe there's a business you can buy that has the resources you need for your startup but that business is already functioning and operating and already has a positive cash flow. So you buy the existing business, you keep running that business, and now you don't have to worry about runway or, or how long into the future your savings or your capital is going to last. And then you use those resources of the company you just acquired to become the basis and the foundation of this new thing that you want to create. The sponsor for today's episode is Live Oak Bank. Live Oak Bank is a seasoned 
small business lender providing SBA and conventional financing for search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire lower middle market companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Andressen directly to start a conversation or go to liveoakbank.com slash let's buy. That's liveoakbank.com slash let's buy. I've actually seen this done a couple times, but it never occurred to me that that's what was happening. And I think this isn't talked about enough. So like, let's unpack that a little bit. You gave a great example of someone wants to start a cookie business rather than go out and spend tens of thousands of dollars, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars on equipment, space, rental space, a truck, all these things, mm-hmm. the, um, the local agri- you know, department of agriculture laws that you have to do because you're you know, producing food in this facility and you know, sign a long-term lease and do all these things, you have all this risk associated with starting this, this business. They went out, acquired something that had everything they already needed, and they would just probably downtime in the morning because who eats pizza for mm-hmm. breakfast other than my three-year-old who does, who loves pizza. Um, <laughs> other than that, like you could probably cook in the morning, right? And that's kind of what you talk about it in, in your book. And you're able to launch your dream idea by a cash-flowing asset. And it's not just that you're getting paid to, to launch it. It's also, you didn't have to go spend a hundred or $200,000 on the equipment and the build out and the leases and all these other pieces. And so one thing that I talk a lot about um, is using underutilized assets or finding businesses that have underutilized assets. And I typically look at it as like, oh, you know, this, this business has, or this e-commerce store has 80,000 emails, but they don't email them, right? And that's kind of one example. What I love about this is you've kind of flipped that on your head and said, it can be a completely unrelated business, but the infrastructure is there to launch your other idea. Yeah, well, you know, this is what big businesses do, right? Like Microsoft, uh, Google, Procter & Gamble, they have all of these resources, all of these people, all of this infrastructure in place. And, you know, a consumer products company might launch several new things every year. And they have the people on staff, they've already got the trucks, the plants, the equipment, the distribution, the sales, and they try to see what will float. And if it doesn't fail, it doesn't work, then it just kind of fizzles out. But this is how they keep refreshing or renewing their line of products that they have to sell. And so, you know, just like we started off in the beginning, you know, take what you learn in school about big companies, try to apply it for, to small businesses. And, and this is a great example of that. The, the other piece that became apparent here too is you might have people in this pizzeria who all are also, also interested in pizza or in cookies. And so, Part of it is you can start figuring out who is already selling to your demographic that doesn't yep. necessarily compete with you. And I just love the fact that rather than borrowing $200,000 to launch a company that has a very high uh, failure rate, instead, they, they said, why don't I buy a cash flowing business for significantly less? It comes with all the equipment and I can launch this thing and it become an additional revenue stream without any additional cost other than, you know, you know maybe some more sugar that, that you're going to use your cookies for. Um, have you seen this done in, in other areas? Or have you seen this done with, with other businesses or, or mainly on like the local level? Where else have you seen this? I, I've seen it done in certain places like industrial machine shop type stuff where people will buy businesses that are already functioning. Maybe they're doing service or contract work or contract manufacturing, and they will have all the plant and equipment there for certain kinds of work. And their intention is to bring certain products to market that will bear their own brand name. When 
when I'm helping people look at businesses and, you know, some people will say, I want to be in manufacturing because they sell for higher multiples. It's not necessarily entirely true. People like contract manufacturers who are just making other people's stuff. They're in a pretty tight margin business, right? Because they don't own or control the trademarks or the brand names or the intellectual property of the goods that they're selling. But somebody who's set up to make other people's things can certainly start to introduce their own products and try to move from being a contract manufacturer into that more full-fledged manufacturer owner of a certain product or service. So in that situation, you could say, hey, they're already producing all these things, but they don't own any of the brands. Yeah. Uh, instead, they should launch a separate brand. They could still produce the contract manufacturing, but they have the facility and probably downtime with their equipment to launch their own brand. They would have the full margin. They would be able to control the ups and the downs because a lot of times contract manufacturers are reliant on the brand for mm-hmm. sales, right? And sales and marketing. And you know, if you're relying on someone else to do all your sales and marketing, you, you just don't have a lot of control over that business. And things like downtime, right? So one of the challenges that often happens when the labor market gets tight is that you might have some really good workers and all of a sudden your pipeline of contracts starts to, starts to dry up. You're hesitant to lay them off or let them go because you know that they will find work someplace else. And so is there a way that we can do something where maybe we increase our own inventories of our own products when when the contract work is down so that we can keep these guys on staff and we don't necessarily let go of people that we might have a hard time replacing. Yeah. There's, especially right now, I don't know how the labor market is in Canada, but it's incredibly difficult to find um, people to hire. Just right here. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's, a, everybody seems to be hiring and there just isn't enough talent pool to go around. Right. Um, that's what we're experiencing in most places here in the U S. Yeah, it, it was same thing happened here. And, you know, a lot of it had to do with assistance related to helping to get through the, you know, the virus issue and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully as we start coming out of that, getting vaccinated, that uh, things will start to bounce back. Um, in, our, in our conversation last week, we chatted about a, a few different things. And one of the examples you gave, you gave this amazing example of, of building rapport. And um, I talk so much about rapport because buying and selling isn't just like a one-time transaction. You don't walk into the store, buy a pair of Nikes and walk out and you never talk to that store owner again. That's a very different transaction than buying a business and selling a business. Mm-hmm. Um, you gave an example of someone from, I think Santa Barbara, someone from California, basically flying uh, to the North, Northern part, maybe it's Pacific Northwest. Can you dive into that example a little bit more and just talk about how rapport played a really big role over many, many months for this deal? Yeah. So, you know, when, uh, what what I find happens a lot is is people will um, be speaking different languages. I guess is maybe a way that I could put it. So somebody, you know, if you think about Michael Gerber, the E Myth, someone's a technician of some sort. They have an, an expertise in a given domain and decides to start a business, and they're an expert in in the you know product or service that they do. And then someone who might want to go out and acquire a business, maybe they you know went to business school and and they speak a different language that I call MBA. Right. So they're talking about deal making. They're talking about internal rates of return. They're talking about all this stuff. And they're talking to somebody who really doesn't know about any of that stuff. What they know about how they, um, you know, treat their customers and how their customers keep coming back and, and, and that kind of angle. And so when you reach out to a person and you all of a sudden are talking about making a deal and you're talking about terms on an LOI or something like that it can be scary and difficult for the person that you're talking with. 
And especially if you want to, you know, get some favorable terms, like ask them for some seller financing or something like this, you know, we don't typically make loans to strangers. And that, that oftentimes is what I see happening when I see people who've met a seller once or twice, or they're dealing through a broker, they present an offer that has a, you know, a large amount of seller financing on it is they're basically asking a stranger to make them a loan. And, and it's hard for the stranger to do that. And this is why a lot of people don't have a lot of success with this kind of deal making. And so what I encourage people to do is they have to build a relationship and that can take a while. So in the case that you were talking about, um, the buyer and seller had met through a broker. They'd had a few phone calls and I suggested to the buyer, get on a plane, go up there. And initially he was like, well, you know, do I really want to spend a full day and a you know plane ticket and all that kind of thing? And I was like, yeah, you need to. And more than anything, it demonstrates to that seller a commitment and an investment just in getting to know the seller and the business. And so, you know, they spent an afternoon together. They got to know each other. Um, the buyer had a chance to learn who, or the seller had a chance to learn who the buyer was. So now you're breaking down that stranger barrier. You're getting a, an opportunity for both people to get to know each other. And now when the buyer goes to make an offer that might include some amount of seller financing, it's not, will I lend money to this stranger? It's, am I willing to make an investment in this person's business acquisition? And now I know them a little bit better. I know what their industry experience is. I know that they may be a very good operator for my business. And it becomes easier and easier to make that decision. Now, in that one particular case, what ended up happening was the seller didn't accept any of the offers made. And then a few months later, the buyer circled back and then there was a second trip and it took almost a year for them to actually reach a deal that worked for the buyer. And at several different points, the seller had to test the market to go back out and see if they were going to find someone else willing to do um, you know, what this buyer was willing to do or more. And eventually they kept coming back. And a lot of it, the, probably the decision that that seller made to sell the business to this particular buyer eventually part of that was based upon the fact that they were able to get to know and develop a trust with this buyer. And I love that. I think buyers sometimes can put a lot of pressure on themselves by having a big seller note. And what I mean by that is you're asking the seller to trust you after a 30 minute conversation or even two 60 minute conversations. And that's a tall order for a seller to want to take, right? You know, they don't know you. They don't know if they're ever going to get paid out again. That's really common in seller notes. You may not ever get paid again. Yeah, you can take legal recourse, but sometimes it's not worth it. And so you're almost saying like, you know, a lot of buyers aren't having success because they put so much pressure on this trust issue of they've got a big seller note that uh, a deal can't be done. And then they end up not having a lot of success. I was just going to say, I'm a big fan of using the hats analogy. Like when I, when I talk with business owners, I say, you know, you've got an operator hat, a manager hat that you wear sometimes, and you've got an investor hat that you wear sometimes. And, and when um, a business owner is talking with a potential buyer, they get a new hat in their collection. It's called the banker hat. And so they have to sit back and go, okay, wait a minute. I built this business. I think it's worth X. This person wants to buy it. Now I have, but, but in order for them to pay me this amount, what they're telling me is I'm going to have to wait for part of the money. So then they go in their drawer and they dig out this new hat, the banker hat, and they start to think about it like a banker. Even if they have no training in finance, they, they're still asking themselves the question you just asked is, will I actually get the money? You know, will I get the payments? 
And if I don't get the payments, what would happen then? What would that look like? You know, what, what would I expect to have happen? And if I had to take the business back, what would the customer relationships be like at that point? And so when buyers are talking with these sellers, they have to understand this is the point of view the seller is going to take, even if they don't cognitively arrive at it. Sometimes you might want to suggest it to them. You might want to say, hey, like you're probably thinking to me about me now, like someone who's going to be making a loan. So let's talk about all the different things that may or may not happen. Let's talk about what that would look like. Because for a seller note situation to be successful, the buyer and seller have to come together and create a relationship. And the reason why it works so well for buyers is that suddenly you have a seller who's in a position where they require you to be successful. So now the interests of the buyer and the seller are both aligned. The seller needs a buyer to be successful in order for the seller to collect on the note. And what that does is it tees up this mentorship coaching relationship where regardless of what the transition agreement says, that seller is always going to take a phone call from the buyer. If there's ever any kind of hiccup bump in the road while money is still owed, they're going to want to be helpful because they don't want to foreclose. They don't want to take it back, right? That's just a huge pain in the butt. And so just like a banker might ask you for certain financial reporting requirements, you know, that you have to submit on a regular basis so that they can watch their loan. I often suggest to buyers that they offer this kind of thing to sellers or that sellers, when I'm working with them, ask for this kind of thing. I'll bring back another example. This is from way long time ago. So it was a bar and bars are notoriously difficult to finance practically impossible to get a banker involved in financing a bar. So I had uh, a bar that was sold and they had a computerized liquor dispensing system, which issued reports, um, you know, it measured the ounces of alcohol and things. So when the business was sold, there was a big seller note. And one of the conditions was that the reports from the computerized uh, serving center had to be submitted every week or every month, I forget, along with the financial, the monthly financial reports of the bar. So the seller was getting this information on a regular basis so he could keep an eye on what was going on. About three or four months into the deal, the seller called the buyer and said, hey, somebody's stealing from you. And this is how I know. And it was because he had run that business for over a decade and he looked at those reports and he looked at the cash flow and he looked at the, the measurements on that computerized liquor system and he knew what to look for to spot when there was trouble. Without his eyes on those reports, it could have been months before the new owner realized that something was going wrong and then took steps to go and try to investigate and figure out how to find out. With the seller looking over his shoulder at this stuff, because again, the seller had an interest in his success, it was spotted right away. And he was able to take action with guidance from the seller on how to figure out who was doing what. That's so critical. I love the mentorship slash coaching model that you brought, you brought up because sellers know the business better than the buyers do. And they will mm -hmm. years potentially after that. You know, you got 10 years of running a business um, and you really... What a seller note does is try to get the seller and the buyer on the same page and try to get them going in the same direction. Um, and in both of both of these examples, you've talked about how the buyer uh, eventually was able to get the, the business on their own terms um, in terms that made sense with their debt payments and stuff, but also keeping involved the previous owner so that these hiccups could happen before it got to the point where you're going under, right? Yeah. You know, at what point does that stealing stop? Well, you don't know, right? 
they get bolder and bolder. You may not pick it up because you haven't run this business. So you don't know the margins should be X and now they're coming in at Y. So with all the deals that you've done and seen as a, as a broker, you've bought your own businesses, you've seen so many, you've done a lot of different teardowns. You brought up an interesting point where small businesses you know, aren't like Coca-Cola, right? Um, you have an example of like, you know, Coca-Cola has amazing drivers. They don't hit anybody. Their trucks are serviced all the time. Um, they have everything working like this well-oiled machine. And that's why Coca-Cola is this multi-billion, billion-dollar company, right? And you yeah. kind of talked a lot about how small businesses can go under and they do go under. So what are some ways that a potential buyer and a potential seller, because no seller wants to see their business go under, and even if they're not involved anymore, what kind of steps can they take to ensure that you know those small businesses don't go under? It comes down to having a realistic cash flow forecast, I think. Because here's here's what happens when you get out and you start looking at businesses. Um, you know the the business brokerage world has brought about certain ways of looking at these small businesses. So they'll they'll break down the cash flow to an EBITDA or to a seller's discretionary earnings level, and then they'll and and these are not perfect levels of cash flow, but it's the only way to really kind of try to compare two different small businesses that maybe in different parts of the country with different circumstances, different conditions especially when you're trying to compare two businesses in the same industry. But here's, here's the problem that happens is I meet so many buyers who look at that seller's discretionary earnings number and they go, if I buy this business, that's the money I get. And I keep reminding people, no, it isn't actually. Um, out of that number, you need to take some money home to live on. Um, you're going to have to pay taxes. Um, if you have any kind of positive cash flow out of your business, the government's going to want some. Um, this number is before interest and debt service, and you will have loans, you will have debt service, you will have interest. That's got to come out of there too. And depreciation and amortization are always added back because they are non-cash expenses. But as Warren Buffett likes to say, you know, the tooth fairy doesn't pay to replace your equipment. So what amount of this seller's discretionary earnings is going to be required for replacing equipment and stuff? I did a video about this a few weeks ago um, where I talked about it, but um, so when you actually look at what real money is available and what money is available for cash flow, and then you act in a conservative fashion, I'm a big um, naysayer about things like the SBA's requirements for debt service coverage. They're way too low. Um, you want to have a generous coverage ratio of free cash flow to what you commit to in a debt service because businesses are asymmetrical systems. What does that mean? It means that a 10% reduction in revenue could be like a 50% reduction in profit, right? It depends on what the ratio is between your fixed expenses and your direct expenses, your direct your cost of goods sold. But you can have businesses with high fixed overheads where a tiny decline in revenue can be a huge decline in profit. When you want a business to be successful, what a good banker does is they look at a cash flow forecast. And they say, what if things go wrong? Will I still be able to get my loan payment? And one of the biggest problems I notice from sellers is that they have this risk avoidance mentality where they want to get their seller note paid off as quickly as possible. So they get their money out of the deal as fast as they can. And they will inadvertently put that business in jeopardy because they will create the very cash flow drain that will cause this the new owner to run into trouble. And so I always recommend that people create a, as detailed as possible a cash flow forecast that can eventually become part of the negotiation with the seller. 
so that you can actually show a seller why the seller note has to be over six years, it can't be over three, and what dangers are created if the seller note is too fast. I'm also a big fan of building in our um, crisis clauses into seller notes. If the seller were to insist on having a shorter note, then you might put a clause in there saying, well, okay, in any given month, if my revenue is below a certain figure, then I'll have the interest, the option of an interest-only payment that month so that I get to hang on to some of my cash. There's all kinds of things you can do in advance to make sure that you have different leverages and paths and tools to help yourself out in the future as a buyer. Um, and it can be often a lot easier to negotiate that up front rather than wait for a crisis and then go back kind of cap in hand and say, like, we need to work this out. Again, you want to have full communication all the time. You want that seller to know what's going on with you. And for, for you to willingly set yourself up for a potential crisis, it doesn't look good. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a little insight, Ryan. I've had sellers say this to me before. They'll demand a shorter note. And when the buyer shows them why that's not feasible, the seller has a greater degree of respect for that buyer because they're demonstrating their expertise and capability as a manager. They're showing this is why we can't repay you in such a short period of time. You're going to endanger the business. And if you endanger the business, chances are you won't collect on part of the note. What's kind of cool about this is I actually did something similar to this on one of the deals that I bought. And I, I didn't know I was doing what you had talked about, but basically we created a cash flow forecast and the seller wanted it faster. And we basically just went back to them and said, you know, based on if we hit X, Y, and Z, we're going to have these types of costs that you don't have now. We actually mm -hmm. can't do that. And it instantly changed the conversation to like, oh, you know, you're right. Like, yeah, that actually wouldn't work in that scenario because the business would be in a different stage. We would have different costs associated with it. And I can absolutely tell you that that saved us from getting into a potential tricky spot. And it wasn't you know, you, you're, you're coming about this and explaining it in such a simple way and it makes sense, but we did this, we kind of fell into it trying to save ourselves from getting into something that we, we couldn't actually service the debt. So, and this was the debt on the seller note, which was really important. And I do love the fact that you said it will reduce, it will increase a lot of respect. And so what, what I have typically found is when, when people are emotional and push back, other people are emotional and meet them too. But if you mm. come to the conversation with data and say, Hey, look, like we love your business. It's great. But like, we can't do this because of X, Y, and Z. Let me show you why. And you just go to them and say, am I wrong? Like, am I missing something in the analysis? Is, is my PNL wrong? Is my cash flow statements wrong? Like, where am I missing this? And you're kind of putting it on the other party saying, actually, in reality, you're right. Like you can't actually do that. And so then it just, it takes it from a, you know, give and take negotiation to, hey, how do we come to the table so we both know that this will work and this have a long-term solution? So um, I, I, I'm a big fan of the word collaboration because, because you're right. The, the, a lot of the times these negotiations are set up as an us versus them, kind of like when you buy a house, you know, sometimes you don't even meet the seller of the house, right? You, you work through an agent or what have you. And so one of the, one of the things that I've noticed is that all of the language in the, the world of buying and selling businesses that is directed towards the business owners who are selling is anti-empathetic. So, so let, me, let me expand on that. What I mean is that if you look at the titles of the books available about selling your business, if you look at the messaging from business brokers, from M&A firms, it's all about 
we'll help you get the top dollar, maximum dollar. We're going to get the highest price. We're going to get you the greatest value, right? And what it does is it creates this this me orientation, this self-centered orientation, which is perfectly understandable. I'll tell you a quick story. There was this little coffee shop that came to me to sell. And um, I looked at what was going on in the business and I said, oh, I said, well, I think I could probably sell your business for like, you know, maybe 60 grand. You should have an asking price of 69,000 on it. And she said, oh, no, no, no. I, I need like a hundred. And I said, okay. I said, no problem at all. Here's the only thing you have to do. You just have to put up a sign up by the cash saying that the there's now a two drink minimum on coffee orders. And that every person that comes to the counter has to buy at least two cups of coffee and you won't sell one anymore. And she looked at me like I had two heads. She's like, well, I can't do that. People don't want two cups of coffee. They want one. And I said, what do you mean? Yeah. I said, what does this have to do with the customers? And she's like, I need happy customers to run a cafe. And I said, oh, okay. So if I take your cafe and I box it up and I put it on the shelf of my business brokerage as a piece of inventory, I don't have to think about what my buyers want. And that's when she got it, right? But she was never once considering the fact that the buyer of the business actually had to put themselves into a position where they were going to be able to make money and earn a living for themselves. And we're going to be able to you know, make the payments and all that kind of stuff. And many times... Um, you know, business owners who are getting ready to sell, they're dreaming about the new Florida house or the yacht or whatever it is that they're going to spend all this money on. And they never once ever look at their own business and say, if I was going to pay this price, I'm asking, how would it work for me? Right. They, 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 they're kind of pushed away from ever considering it from the other point of view. Yet that's what they do every day in their business when they consider their own customers. They always think about their customers' needs in their own business, but when they get ready to sell, they don't necessarily think about the buyer. You got to take that that seller hat off, the operator hat off. You got to put a buyer hat on. What are you going to look for in your own business if you were going to buy it, right? And what does it make sense for you to be able to do that? With just a couple of minutes left, I know there's a lot of places people can find you, find your books, learn more about you with your YouTube channel. Where can people find and follow you? Oh, well, the easiest place to go would be davidcbarnett.com. It's where my blog site is. And you'll find links there to my email list and my books and stuff are on Amazon and on YouTube. You just search David Barnett and you'll find me. And um, I try to put out new videos every week and they also end up on the audio stream. And so, you know, if you, if you look for David Barnett, uh, you'll find me. David, thank you so much for a few minutes of your time. Uh, we'll make note of that. And uh, <laughs> thanks so much for being on the show. Awesome, Ryan. It was great chat. And, uh, and thank you very much for having me on.